This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Welcome to the first in a series of mental health episodes of The Every Lawyer, taking a closer look at the national study on the psychological health determinants of legal professionals in Canada. Thank you for listening. My name is Julia Tetrault-Provencher. The data analyzed in the report comes from a national survey on the wellness of legal professionals in Canada. More than 7,300 legal professionals from all jurisdictions, lawyers, Quebec notaries, Ontario paralegals, and articling students participated in the survey. Some key findings from this study include, but are not limited to, More than half of all respondents reported experiencing psychological distress and burnout. Those rates are even higher for professionals living with a disability, for articling students, lawyers aged between 26 and 35, legal professionals with less than 10 years of experience, legal professionals identifying as members of LGBTQI2S plus community, and women. The biddable hours model has a highly negative impact on mental health, but the emotional demands of client is the risk factor with the most significant impact. The key skills to build resilience and shield legal professionals from stressors are psychological detachment from work and the ability to set limits. Our first guest is the Honorable Justice Michelle J. Hollins of Queen's Bench of Alberta and past CBA president. First, can you maybe give us a little bit of um, an idea, context of this report? Well, I will not be an expert on the report. I have received it and I've read it as much as it. I'm uh, able to Uh, ingest that much information. But it was a report commissioned, as I understand it, jointly from the CBA, the Canadian Bar Association, and the Federation of Law Societies of Canada. So two organizations that have, in my view, quite a vested interest in mental wellness in the profession, both as a supporting organization to the profession and as, of course, the regulator or the umbrella organization of our regulators. I think uh, what really commends this piece of work is the way that they went about it. So this wasn't just the CBA or the Federation or anyone sort of asking 20 lawyers to rate their sadness on a scale of one to 10 or something. This was an expansive piece of work undertaken by um, researchers primarily at the University of Sherbrooke. So there are extensive bios at the beginning of the report. But I just have to say that my first reaction to it was really, wow, what a lot of work, extremely comprehensive, and something that is done, I think, somewhat uniquely with, with, with a, sci a very scientific uh, approach to it and a very scientific bent to it. So we have actual definitions of uh, things in the report and, and, and studying um, something like mental health uh, in the legal profession is a, is a, a kind of a, uh, an amorphous concept. And so I was just really, really impressed with how clear 
and yet how um, convincing from a scientific perspective the work was. Yeah, me too, I must say. So, you know, the, the report is very comprehensive and it shows that there is a significantly higher level of psychological distress among legal professionals uh, than experienced by the Canadian working population in general. So 57.5% compared to 40% and a similar higher levels of anxiety. Are there any surprises that you you had when you read that report? Um, I don't actually, I think far more was the confirmation of things that we have heard, primarily antidotally, I guess, or we've experienced ourselves, certainly I have, uh, about what is happening. And, and I guess, uh, and I guess why, I mean, the surprise might be drawing such clear connections for the first time between some of the things that we have suspected cause um, elevated rates of depression, anxiety, and burnout, uh, but seeing it in black and white um, was uh, was something. Any any top takeaways that you would like to really raise here in that podcast? Yeah, I think the two things that really jumped out at me was, first of all, how, how again, how clearly the researchers were able to correlate the experience of anxiety, depression, and burnout to particular factors. And of course, I would narrow in on what they called quantitative overload and its relationship to the billable hour system that at least in private practice, most firms still use. I just think that even though it's, it's shockingly black and white, even though it is completely unsurprising to see that correlation. We have talked about the billable hour system as feeding this monster for years. I saw in the report that the ABA, the American Bar Association, called the uh, billable hour corrosive 20 years ago in 2002. So for 20 years, we have known that this is a significant contributing factor to the mental illness that is experienced by so many of our professionals. But that was one thing. And the second thing I would say that was really jumped out at me, and again, confirming something that I think most of us know intuitively, but again, to see it in black and white is really helpful, is the disproportionate impact of these things um, and the disproportionate experience of depression, anxiety, and burnout in identifiable groups, particularly young lawyers was the one that really stood out to me, but um, women, Indigenous uh, people of color, LGBTQ lawyers, and disabled lawyers, um, you know, it, it makes perfect sense but again, I think there is just huge value in having those those conclusions laid out the way they are. Yeah, definitely. And I think you raised an important point here. And what I really liked was the intersectional way that the, the report is made. You know, it really talks, it doesn't only talk about like people, it really disaggregates the data, which I think is very interesting. Also, when you want to say, because as you say, we all know in the profession, it's a problem, but sometimes we're just like, oh yeah, well, we know, we know. But now there's really statistics and data, which is very interesting. And um, do you think, because you say it's been 20 years in 2002, we already knew that. Uh, do you think it's something that the profession doesn't really want to hear? Is there anything that you think is very, you know, it stays like that because people don't want to look at it. And um, do you think this report will be a way to maybe change that culture that we couldn't do 20 years ago? Um, well, perhaps. I mean, that's the hope. You know, I think, uh, well, first of all, uh, in addition to the data, I do want to encourage everyone to read the testimonials that are included through this report. I just think they're so compelling 
you just you're not going to experience or you're not going to um, absorb everything that this report has to tell you if, you if you don't listen to those individual voices. But I think the part of the story that the profession doesn't want to hear is that the solutions largely lay within the profession itself. There are absolutely things we can do as individuals, and I have talked about those. I've tried to practice those, and certainly even in this report, there are recommendations, there are suggestions for how we can uh, take better care of ourselves and be more proactive with our own mental health, and that is important. But, um, you know, we can't, young lawyers can't just change the global hour system by themselves. Uh, that's going to lie with the organizations and the corporations and the private firms um, and the government departments that that have structured the work in such a way that quantitative overload is almost impossible to avoid. Do you think there's any way, do you think the legal profession is open to have this discussion with both the, the, young, the young one, but the one, the people who have been there for a long time now? Uh, and how do you think we can start that discussion? I think this report, as you say, also the testimonies that we have in that is a good starting point. But then what what can we do? What, what would be, you know, the um, kind of the next step to have an open conversation? And do you think, actually, my, my question is twofolded. First, do you think that the legal profession is open to have such conversation? And then on the other end, uh, where can we have that discussion? Where does it start, wow. do you think? Oh, Julia, if I... <laughs> You know, it is a very difficult discussion. I mean, the way that things are structured now, generally, lawyers sell their time for money. That's what they do. And so you have removed an awful lot of flexibility in when that is how you sort of have structured the basic exchange of services. So it's it's very hard, I think, to change something that has been so ingrained and so well accepted for so long and, frankly, has worked for some people. But I do think, so I, I've thought a lot about where the pressure points may be, and I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, one might be from the client perspective. We certainly have some examples of, if you look, if you look at investing, so not law, but you look at the investment community and the idea that investors became more socially aware, more environmentally aware, And they began to put pressure um, on not just individual companies, but on funds and fund managers uh, to take those things into account. So there might be some way in which clients could eventually bring some pressure to bear. I have a great deal of hope if if we can keep them in the profession that young people, um, that younger lawyers uh, may may also present that sort of a pressure point. You know, when I was a younger lawyer. If you weren't willing to work 1,800 hours a year or more, someone else was. And so that was, you know, there was no shortage of legal talent that was prepared to, to uh, simply work under those conditions. And I think it looks to me like that is, that's just no longer the case. And so I think that if, if firms run out of really good lawyers, that are prepared to work in an unworkable environment, then that may, that may be a pressure point as well. But it's, it's a very difficult uh, nut to crack. There's, there's just no question about it. And I will, of course, because someone will be listening to me right now and saying, well, what do you know? Uh, of course, I, uh, I left the profession probably uh, like the, as a lawyer uh, five and a half years ago. And prior to that, I was a partner in a law firm. And 
I depended on associates to work and to generate billable hours and to be able to bill those out to clients. So, you know, I was certainly part of that system, even while I recognized that it was um, extremely harmful for a lot of people, at least over the over the long term. So now I'm out of the profession. I don't know if that makes it better or worse in terms of being able to look at uh, at legal organizations and departments and companies and firms and try to figure it out. But I mean, you know, we're smart people. Um, so if uh, if pressure was brought to bear at the right place at the right time, I, I do think it's one of those, you know, I think you might have to create a situation where everyone jumps at the same time. So I, I don't know exactly how that happens, but I'm, I'm hoping that this, uh, that this piece of work, this report, might certainly motivate some people that are in decision-making positions to uh, start to think more proactively. But do you think that when we talk about mental, uh, mental health issues and the, the mental and the wellness challenges uh, that are being met in the profession, do you feel that, well, in general, the legal profession is aware of those challenges And, but that they are just denying or that they are just being like, well, you know, it's uh, we want to make money. We want that. We, we have ambition. We are we're firms. So we're not going to talk about it unless some people talk about it or that maybe there is some, you know, like good faith and that maybe people don't know. And this report is actually now now that it's out, we will see some changes. Yeah, no, I certainly hope so. I mean, I don't think we're at the point quite yet where there's no stigma attached talking about your own mental illness. Um, and I think that's partly because of the nature of the profession and the nature of what we do. I mean, we present ourselves, private practice, for example, and I guess in, in uh, corporations and government as well, you present yourself to your client as competent and it's, it's someone in whom they can repose their trust and their confidence. And, um, you know, certainly at the height of my depression, I was not a person in whom confidence could be a, a place I was I was quite debilitated uh, by my depression and so I don't know that we've sort of figured out exactly how to open those doors completely but I will say that over the 20 years or so that I've been well I guess 15 years that I've been quite involved in um, in mental health issues in the profession that there's no question there is a vastly increased awareness of mental health problems. And there is a vastly increased commitment, I think, to having open conversations about that. And there's a commitment on behalf of organizations and firms as well to doing something about it. But as I said, it sort of goes back to, in fact, one of the testimonials that was in there really stuck out to me because it said, you know, there are no amount of massages that are going to fix this for me if I can't find a way to do the work that you need done and do it in a way that allows me to still be healthy. So I think that's, you know, we just kind of keep butting up against uh, against the problem. But I'm still encouraged by that because I think we are over the hump where people were just like, no, this doesn't happen or it happens to other people or it happens only to weak people and it's their own fault and they should be able to, you know, sort of self-talk themselves out of it. And if they had more of a work ethic, I mean, those attitudes may still, I'm sure they do linger, but they are not the main dialogue uh, anymore. So, so there's that. And I'd like to thank you uh, for uh, your years of service to the CBA. 
for joining us today. I already told you, but that's really an honor. Uh, also for sharing your story uh, and for inspiring others to do the same. Because I think that, as you say, to 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 kind of break that culture and to, to talk more about it. It's also, you also need to have some, some leaders or some people who are ready and willing to talk about it, to share their, their experience and also to show that this is something common that happens and, and that it's not, you know, it's not because of a bad uh, working ethic or uh, it's just because, well, it happens and it happens way more than we think. Uh, and also I would like to encourage our listeners to check conversations with the president season four Uh, episode four. Long story short, you chose to speak publicly about your own mental health, where so many people in the legal profession to keep their concerns to themselves because they fear stigmatization, because maybe they don't even know what's happening to them as well, uh, because they fear that they will lose their job, that they will not have uh, this promotion they want to have, or, or as you also mentioned, because the profession is all about being confident and so nice and swift and everything so would it be all right to ask about uh, speaking out a little bit in this podcast as well certainly absolutely but i want to begin with a bit of a disclaimer which is this that when i so so the depression that that knocked me off my horse in a big way happened uh, about 15 years ago and i won't uh, go into the whole story as you said i, I do talk about it in uh, my last interview with uh, with uh, Stephen Austin, but But it actually happened because my kids were leaving home for university, which uh, sounds like a really crazy reason to be thrown into the depths of depression. But it was really quite uh, something. And in fact, even now, you know, they've been gone. I've got grandkids uh, for people. And, and even now, when I think back to that time and, and the panicked feelings um, that I, it was just complete terror of, you know, them leaving and, And, and being um, being without them. It wasn't even being alone, it was being without them. And um, uh, that was just extremely hard for me. When I recovered from that with help, including uh, some antidepressants and a lot of counseling, I was ready to talk about it. Um, and that sort of happened around the time that I came into a CBA leadership role and really believed that the Canadian Bar Association was a perfect platform for a conversation like that. And so I did make that one of my priorities when I was um, the president over that uh, year. But the disclaimer, which I'm getting around to, is that I was at that time a partner in my law firm and I worked in a small law firm. I had a lot of autonomy um, in my practice and I was very, very supported by my partners in this about you know year and a half or two years that it took to go through this and get back on my feet. And so that is a very enviable position, not the depression itself, but that support. I, I you know, will also say, reading the, um, the report, that one of the things that really jumped out at me was the importance of a personal support network. You know, the idea that people with a spouse at home or with young children are actually less susceptible to depression and anxiety, it just blows my mind because if you spent a bunch of time working and taking care of small kids at the same time. It seems completely counterintuitive, but, but I think that is uh, about the support that, um, that can make all the difference. And certainly for me, it absolutely did. That was what allowed me, I think, to, uh, to get up, to talk repeatedly about my experience, you know, in the hopes that people would identify with that and feel less like they were 
the only person or less like they had no uh, uh, options um, for how to deal with it. I must say that I think we as a as a junior lawyer it's always i thank you very much uh for coming forward and for sharing because i think that we don't hear enough of that and when we are in law school we don't hear at all about it and then when we start our career then we want to prove ourselves so much and we never never talk about it so thank you very much and i really encourage our listeners um to go and listen to it i'm very concerned actually about uh young lawyers and um you know particularly because the young lawyers i know are, are much more proactive about their mental health than my generation was i mean you know my kids have, have taught me that they you know go to their therapist like they go to the dentist more often um so um but to know that young people younger lawyers are more embracing of the idea of personal health uh, care, mental health care. Um, it's still really discouraging to know that they are a group that is struggling so much. Yeah, that's why I was a bit surprised too with the report this, because as you say, it's something that we talk way more now, uh, but still to, to see that it is still a thing and it's still very, very problematic. Uh, me too, I was, uh, I was surprised and I think we really need to, to work on that. Um, and, and now I'd like to share some myth busters. So some things you probably heard that I know I've heard is that you never fully recover from a mental breakdown. People with mental health history are unpredictable and unreliable and unemployable. Uh, you only need a therapist because you don't have friends. Uh, it's all in your head. All expressions of a person very afraid of the things they are describing. What are some mental health and wellness myths that you believe persist among legal professionals? I mean, you did touch upon the, and I really like it, the, the fact that we need to, it's how we, you know, lawyers, we have to, to, to be so um, reliable and you know, just that outfit. I mean, I'm fascinated about like how we need to present ourselves, you know, to be like so professional with the suit and Um, so, so are there some, yeah, mental health and wellness myth that you think in the legal profession are really persist? Well, I mean, I was, you know, the idea that, um, people with mental health issues are unemployable, I think is particularly destructive. You know, the, the profession is replete with, uh, people like myself who, you know, practiced and, and, you know, I'm, I'm now on the bench and. I just had a, an amazing and very fulfilling career, notwithstanding my situational, notwithstanding my situational depression. One of the things that I have learned through my experiences was meeting people who who manage their own uh, chronic mental um, health issues and do it and do it very well and do it permanently. And so, uh, I think again with that sort of increasing awareness of mental health as something that we all we all have uh to you know some it's better and some it's worse and some in and in individuals we have better days and worse days but i think that uh understanding that uh, mental health like any other health issue can be uh, can be treated and can be managed and does not mean that the person is inherently unreliable or unemployable i think that's really really important On the other side, I think, you know, one of the things that happened to me, of course, was 
just that that sort of self-talk about well you just get over it get you know snap out of it and and that was you know i really believe that i could just by force of will make myself feel better because of course there was nothing wrong with my life objectively like if you looked at my life it was great and it was great um but i didn't feel that way and so the dissonance between how i felt inside and how i knew my life looked objectively led me to just continually berate myself for being depressed and to avoid or at least i guess not realize uh, that what i needed was outside help I, i i needed help and so that's the other myth that i encourage people all the time to just put aside is if you are feeling really critical levels of depression anxiety and burnout it's not going to get better on its own it's not something that you can ignore and it will just uh and it will just get better over time you need to take uh responsibility and um and try to reach out and that can be so 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 hard to do it sounds easy and it's not at all but it is something that you need to do for you and for your loved ones and if you're seeing someone that you think is in the throes of that help them out because it it can be very hard i actually only ended up sort of breaking the cycle of talking to myself when a couple of people in my life came to me and said you need some help so so i'd encourage people to do that uh, and maybe as a um as a good practice would you like to share how it was how did you feel and how how those people did it uh, because i know that sometimes we might see colleagues or friends but we don't necessarily know how to reach out to them without um you know uh, breaking this being disrespectful or uh, you know insinuating that they they have a mental health issue or so we don't know how what what the good words would be yeah i'm not an expert on that kind of intervention although i can certainly point you i think to some uh, and the listeners to some resources um my own situation was um it was actually a couple of cba CBA members. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> that I worked with who had gotten me involved in the CBA and and our then uh, executive director of our branch and and both of them separately came to me and said, you know, I think you're I think you're not doing okay. I think you need some help. And it, it sort of emphasizes that uh, importance of having a support network like that. You know, they, they didn't have I don't think a lot of trouble in saying that to me maybe they did but i'm sure glad that they did because it really broke that mental ice for me about what on earth is wrong with me and so just just that question you know how are you doing you, you, it looks like you're maybe not doing so well uh do you think that you would benefit from talking to someone there are lots of professionals um available that might be able to help you and even you know i mean if you have a conversation and and uh, you think it's not the right person then you can try someone else but you know i think just encouraging people to take that first step and and offering to be there with them to support them through the through the difficult process of getting started on some sort of a treatment plan uh can be really important but if it's a if it's a, a situation and and i get asked this all the time you know a, a younger lawyer who thinks that a senior more senior lawyer in their office is struggling Um, that can be i appreciate that's a different situation or can be um and if you don't feel comfortable you may need to raise it with someone else in the office an intermediary with whom you do feel comfortable um and i will also say that the assistance programs in uh, all the provinces that i am aware of have resources to help people 
um, with those difficult situations. So as you said, you know, the, the, how, to, how to broach the subject, the words to use, there's a lot of resources available to help you with that. Thank you. And I think I will try to maybe share some in, a, in the, this podcast in the link so that people can have access to it. And what I hear also is the importance of um, taking care of each other, even in the legal profession, even between colleagues. And even, you know, uh, when you have some rivalry with some of your colleagues, it's also to make sure that this doesn't go too far, uh, which brings me maybe to one of my, my questions is, where a healthy rivalry that you might have in a, any firm, smaller one, bigger one, uh, still being that healthy, what is this line? It depends on on the person, but um, what would you say in your experience? And this one I'm not sure really sort of resonates with me a lot. I mean, honestly, the my own experience with articling and being a young lawyer was that all of us were so overworked and so stressed about job insecurity that we just clung to each other like we were on a lifeboat. No one was trying to push anyone off the lifeboat. We were all just, you know, sort of bound together in our misery. Um, and, and I think there's still a fair bit of that for, uh, for young lawyers. Not, not that I encourage the misery part, but there still is, I think, a, a, you know, a lot of bonding that goes between young lawyers and maybe less of the rivalry that we see on TV shows and movies. But, you know, there's no question, you may not be fighting for a position, but as I said, the model that most lawyers work in now rewards long hours. And so, you know, it, it, it does, I think, mean that we need to continue to look out for each other and young lawyers need to look out for each other too. And that may even mean helping someone out if they are really, really in a bind even though you've got work of your own to do. I mean, those kinds of things are hard to do, but they're important because they're hard to do. And when you give like that to other people and you're willing to support them when they really need it, then you've got the network created that will help you when your turn comes around. And it, it almost always does. At what time do you think people start to, to, to worry about their uh, mental health hygiene? At what time do you think like some, someone who never thought about this would start, it would be a good moment for them to think about it, that, that they will have this moment being like, okay, yeah, I, I need to, to take care of my uh, mental health. Do you think there's like a, a moment that it, it should happen? Maybe that's university or in the firm. Or, um, or when, yeah, before, you know, before it becomes, before it's too Yeah, late. I mean, I think, I think the conversation around mental health hygiene has changed enormously. I think that people do talk regularly about what they're doing to try to stay healthy um, or, or feel better. And, you know, the more often we have those conversations, first of all, the more information that, exchange, that we exchange, which is, you know, which is helpful. I have colleagues here who will suggest things uh, and I will try them and vice versa. So I do think that conversation is ongoing and I do think that cuts across uh, generational divides as, as well. But there is still, there is still certainly a phenomenon, I think, that if you have not ever had a problem yourself, then you may, as I did, believe that you are impervious, you know, to it. And, and that was certainly me. I was the happiest person that I knew. I couldn't imagine myself being sad, much less being, um, you know, dysfunctional for months to years on end. So I, I think that's where it's sort of, we sort of circle back to the importance of continuing to share those stories, the difficult stories. And when you have 
people in the profession that are able to say, you know, look, yeah, everything is great right now, and I don't want to be the, you know, the the, the bearer of uh, bad news. But um, you know, your career will have a lot of ups and downs, and the more mentally prepared you are for the downs, the shorter those periods of times are, are going to be. So I, I think it's important, particularly for senior people, to you know, to put aside their uh, their pride. And, uh, you know, for us to, to talk about how difficult things could be and how we, you know, how we manage to, with help, uh, find our way out of them. I think that could be really helpful. And I kind of have a question that, that popped, to my, popped to my mind while you were talking. But, you know, when we talk about senior uh, lawyers, and I don't want to, to be into this very binary uh, way of thinking, but I kind of feel like it might be also more difficult sometimes for senior, you know, who are male lawyers who've been doing that for 50 years and you know, they are also a bit less comfortable with talking from the start you know, to talk about those things so I, i'm also i'm wondering you know how how to start this discussion between the, the, those seniors who are maybe even not themselves comfortable to talk about it and then the young the junior ones men and women who are maybe who want to talk about it and who need to talk about it and who need to to see their their seniors concern and i'm just thinking you know how to, how to bridge this gap and i think this report is a good start but yeah every story every story is valuable right so they are are all valuable but there is something about seeing a very senior member of the profession you know share a very personal and difficult experience that i think it is really quite transformative i've appeared at least once i guess on a panel with the honorable justice Clement gascon of the Supreme Court of Canada. And I mean, you talk about someone, you know, at the top of his game, being willing to talk about his mental health issues and, and how they manifest and, and what he did and how he has managed those issues over his career was really incredible. Um, and so, you know, providing forums for uh, fora for um, people of all uh, senior levels of seniority, of all Um, description to talk about these things. I think the broader, the broader the spectrum of people prepared to say, I have had a mental illness and this is what it looked like, you know, the more people are going to identify with that. Totally, totally agree. Yeah. Um, so maybe one last question for you or two last questions, which are interconnected, but what would you like to see more of and what would you like to see less of? Hmm. Well, uh, what I would like to see more of is something I've already mentioned, which is the, the decision makers. So the, the leaders of the profession, the regulators of the profession, you know, representatives of the bench, representatives of the bar, representative of all of the marginalized groups and minorities that this report has said are in particular need of help to have that conversation about you know if if it's a straight line from unrealistic expectations to depression anxiety and burnout then you know we're not even in the diagnostic phase anymore we should be moving to the to the solutions phase so that's what i'd like to see more of um put very simplistically i realize that and i guess less of um well I mean, I still see, you know, I still see in my current profession, 
a fair bit of reluctance, actually. So I've talked a lot about how, oh, there's a big conversation going on around mental health, and that's true. But, you know, in my own backyard, there's still a lot of work to be done. So I think, you know, eliminating that stigma should be a very achievable goal. I love that. I mean, people don't see me, but I'm nodding like crazy while you while you're talking. <laughs> and I think, well, I think we can thank the, the CBA and the, the Université de Sherbrooke, Sherbrooke University and the uh, Federation of Law Societies for that report, because I kind of feel like, you know, it's a good starting point to have to, to have this discussion, to have more testimonies of people sharing Uh, what they have lived, and even sometimes what they are still living. Uh, well, and also thank you so much, Justice Hollins. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And there's also a question that uh, we have uh, sometimes, usually it's when the podcast is over, but we're always like, is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to discuss? So this time, uh, while we are still recording, I would like to ask you if uh, there is anything that I didn't ask that you would like to share with our listeners? Nothing I don't think that I intended to try to mention and haven't, but I do want to thank everyone associated with the report. I'm looking forward to hearing from uh, Madame Cadu and uh, listening to a little bit more about the research side of it. But from my perspective, I also want to thank the Canadian Bar Association and the Federation of Law Societies of Canada. This is really important work and it doesn't happen in a vacuum. There has to be will, there has to be resourcing. And uh, so I'm very appreciative um, of those organizations putting that uh, putting that heft behind us. Thank you very much. And I'm wishing you a good day. Thank you very much, Julia. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and share it with friends and colleagues and look out for them. Also, look out for mental health episodes of The Every Lawyer in the weeks and months ahead. If you would like to comment on anything you've heard in this podcast, please contact us directly via cba.org. Hello, I'm Steve Bujot, president of the Canadian Bar Association. I'd like to invite you to welcome with me Barbara Finley, Lee Nevins, and Judge Kyle McKenzie, among others, to a series of kitchen table discussions on the legal system protecting its institutions, judicial independence, access to justice, where to start. You can see there's a lot to talk about. Conversations with the President. Episode 1 is out now.